Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. Let's jump in. If you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. That is where we are going to start this morning. Genesis chapter 2. Now, when I was a kid, well, I should say this this way. If any of you have talked to me for any amount of time personally, you know I tend to be sort of a sarcastic person. That tends to be kind of my humor in the way that I process things, and I get that from my father. And my father used to pull a lot of pranks on me. For example, he would notice, and this is the reason I'm car when I ride with anyone else in a car, uh, he would, whenever he was driving me somewhere, as he would slow down, my, he would notice that my head would lurch forward from just momentum. And so he would take that opportunity to brake check the car, which is to slam on the brakes just to see how far my head would jerk forward as a joke. The other thing he would do is as we would pull into school in the one-lane road, he would just zigzag back and forth to try and, and scare me. And as a kid, it worked several times. And one of the things that he used to do, I promise my father wasn't abusive. He was a great man, and I love him to death. Uh, he, he would do this thing to me and my older brother, who's three years older than me, and he would, he would come up to us as we, were, as we were little, and he would hold out his arm straight with his elbow locked. And he would just say, Ryan and Devin, see if you can push my arm in. See if you can make it bend. And so my brother and I, being young and wanting to be stronger than our dad and wanting to prove ourselves as men, would step up to the challenge and with all of our might try and push in his locked arm. And every single time we would fail. Now, you'd think it was because we were you think it was because we were weaker than him, but see, we're not that smart. We just assumed that when your elbow is locked, you can't unlock it unless that person does it, because I guess that's the kind of logic that we have growing up. So when I get to high school, I think this is a great way to prank my friends and show them that I'm stronger than them. So I go up to one of my friends, and I lock my arm proudly, and I stand there, and I say, try and unlock my arm. My friend walks up to me, puts one hand on my fist, and then just karate chops the inside of my elbow. And in that instant, my entire world was shattered. I had been lied to my entire life by omission, and my father had won. <laughs> and I was embarrassed and I was humiliated, but my dad got us. And I came home, and of course, I, I laid into him about it, and he just laughed the entire, through the entire story as he realized that this thing that really wasn't a big deal to him at all had entirely just broken my worldview and shattered me. My dad tricked me without actually having to do anything at all. How many of you are World War II, like you like to study about it or are really fascinated with history? There is something that happened shortly after the bombing of, of, of Pearl Harbor a few years into, a couple of years into the war, which is that off the coast of, of off the west coast, they started to notice submarines and, and, and ships off the coast. And so the U.S. government assumed 
that the next, the most likely next target for any bombing or any attack would be somewhere on the West Coast. And so they did something very interesting. I'm going to read this quote to you. The West Coast became the next presumed target, and in a short period of time, strategic wartime factories became sites for the elaborate construction of entire replica towns, complete with fake houses, roads, cars, and even residents. Under this detailed walkable roof of mock suburban landscape, nearly 7,000 Boeing B-17 flying fortresses were being produced for the precision strategic bombing campaign of World War II against German industrial and military targets. In order to hide wartime factories, the U.S. built and invested in entire fake towns, empty buildings that, that had no rooms in them but simply just a fake rooftop, fake trees that when looked at from specific angles would look like they were real, chicken feathers painted green and put on these fake trees to simulate leaves. In fact, they even hired and paid actors to just take strolls down these fake sidewalks and fake roads so that anyone that would look at these towns would think they're real. And this strategy worked. In fact, there was a time that the Allies over in, I believe it was Germany, but I might be wrong on this, had an entirely fake army produced. When I say fake army, you can actually find a picture of, of a guy either, I think he's either pushing or lifting an inflatable tank. <laughs> an entire fake army meant to deceive the enemy, and it worked. You see, there are two types of deception that I want to talk about this morning. Number one is the one that we do to ourselves, and number two is the one that happens to us as a result of someone else's work. The first example was when I convinced myself of something that wasn't true. The second was when the U.S. government and the allies convinced the Axis powers, the enemy, that this that these things were real, and they deceived them based off of their own work. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2 to dive into a little bit of what this deception looks like. So Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 15. Now we're going to skip around a little bit in Genesis, but just stick with me. Now Genesis chapter 2, the world has been created, God has rested on the seventh day, and He has created man, He's created everything. And so... In verse 15, we pick up, he says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Pay very close attention to that wording as we move to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, if we're fast-forwarding, God has created Eve, has given Adam this partner in the garden. And we start reading in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve did something here that several of us would do. I've noticed this in addicts a lot, which is this. When you know that you're supposed to avoid something, typically you will put an extra boundary in place to make sure that you go nowhere near what you were supposed to be avoiding. For example, someone who is addicted to pornography might put a firewall on their computer to safeguard them from going to any websites. That would be inappropriate. Or a, someone who is trying to stop smoking might say, hey, I'm probably not going to go into any gas stations because those gas stations have a wall right behind the cash register of all of these cigarettes. The base reasoning and the base logic behind this is I need to stop or I need to avoid this. There's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, there's nothing wrong with the boundary that's put in place. However, what Eve does is a step further. The base logic, do not eat of this tree. The boundary she put in place, I'm not even going to touch it. The mistake, God said I shouldn't touch it. She put her own boundary in the place of God's words. And so all the serpent has to do is disprove her logic, and he makes God out to be a liar from Eve's perspective. So I imagine that the serpent, as he is talking with Eve, probably wraps himself around a fruit. He probably says, see, you won't die. I'm touching it. There's nothing wrong. And all of a sudden, all of Eve's preconceived notions about what God had said get destroyed because she put was a, what was a boundary for herself into God's mouth. And what the most interesting part of this story to me is we talk about the serpent deceiving Eve and, and deceiving Adam, but the serpent really didn't, all he did was ask a couple questions. He didn't do a whole lot else. Eve did most of the work herself. When it says in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she did all of the work of her deception herself. And she failed. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is what happens to us very often. 
When we ask God for something, and, and maybe this has happened to you, when you ask God for something, He gives it to you, and then you say, all right, great, I got it. No need to ask anymore, right? And what ends up happening is with gifts that we are given, we become self-sufficient in them. So if God's given me wisdom, then there's no need to commune with God about anything that needs to happen now because God's given me wisdom or God has given me knowledge. And so with that knowledge that I've been given, with that wisdom that I've been given, I have the tools I need to deal with my life. This is what Eve does. This is what several of us do. The problem is, when we rely solely on the gifts that we have been given instead of the God who has given them, we are able to convince ourselves of anything. This is part of why you see so many different denominations. This is part of why you see so many different belief systems, even within the realm of Christianity. I want to flip forward in Scripture to Matthew chapter 4. And I want to look at the other style of deception. And if you've read Matthew through, you probably know where I'm going with this. That's okay. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Jesus is about to start his ministry. He has just been baptized, and he is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. We're going to pick up in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And, he adds, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, one of our early Adventist writers shed some light on this in Desire of Ages. And she says this, there came to the Savior as if in answer to his prayers, one in the guise of an angel from heaven. He claimed to have a commission from God to declare that Christ's fast was at an end. As God had sent an angel to stay the hand of Abraham from offering Isaac, 
So satisfied with Christ's willingness to enter the blood-stained path, the Father had sent an angel to deliver him. This was the message brought to Jesus. And I want to think through this a little bit logically here. If Jesus existed before creation, if Jesus was involved in the creation of Lucifer who would become Satan, if, if Jesus was involved in all of this, then Jesus knows Satan better than anyone. Which means that if Satan appears to Jesus as Satan, then none of these verses happen. And immediately Jesus opens with be gone. Because he knows who Satan is. But Jesus is weak from hunger. He is tired from being in the wilderness. And 40 days and 40 nights spent in complete solitude can be a little bit difficult on the psyche. On the psyche. So Satan appears to him as the one thing that would be the most likely to deceive him. Most likely an angel. Because this would be the way that Satan would accomplish his goal. In the garden, Satan did not appear as himself to one of God's creation. So then why would he appear to Jesus as himself? See, as Eve looks at the serpent in the garden, you and I may see a talking serpent and freak out and run away. But for her, who was supernaturally created, who has been involved in all of this, who's seen all of this, a talking serpent isn't going to ruffle her feathers any, at all. That's not going to surprise her. That's not going to really catch her off guard. It's going to be just another thing in this wonderful world that God has created. Now I see a snake, regardless of whether it can talk, and I'm gone. <laughs> I'm bolting. But I want you to notice the difference in how, God, how Jesus responds to how Eve responded. Jesus simply responds with, it is written. Jesus responds not with his own wisdom, knowing he is in a state of weakness from fatigue and hunger. Rather, he responds directly with Scripture. It was nothing he thought up himself in the moment. It was no artificial barriers or boundaries that he set up between him and the sins he would try to avoid. But he used full-on direct quotes. This is in direct contrast with Eve, who would add to those quotes. See, she started off correctly by quoting what God had said. And then she adds. It is interesting to me that so many of us try to take Satan one-on-one. -on -one. And when you think about it, this would be like me trying to challenge Michael Jordan to a one-on-one -on -one in basketball or me trying to challenge Michael Phelps to a swimming race. In both situations, they have way more training, way more practice, way more experience than I ever will. And you would call me absurd for thinking that I could win going up against these people who only have 10, 20 years on me in experience. And yet for some reason, several of us think 
that we can take Satan one-on-one knowing he's been at this game for, a thousand, for thousands of years. And so we read our scripture and we arm ourselves with all of this knowledge and we pray for all of this wisdom so that when we encounter that one-on-one situation, we can win. As if Satan doesn't know scripture. As if Satan doesn't know all of the ways to push your buttons to make you sin. As if Satan doesn't know what he's doing. We underestimate him a lot, and it's so interesting to me. It's one of the greatest struggles I have when someone says, God, why did you do this to me? Because somehow we've convinced ourselves that God is the source of all the bad and not Satan. What if that knowledge that we arm ourselves with, what if all of that wisdom that we arm ourselves with is simply this? Maybe we should rely on God as revealed through His Word. Maybe that's the wisdom and the knowledge we need. I want to read two verses to you. They're going to sound somewhat similar, and yet they describe two different people. The first is in Revelation chapter 5. You don't need to turn there, but you're welcome to if you'd like. I'm just going to read one verse to you. This is in one of the visions that John is given in Revelation. He's seated before the throne room, and and there are elders there. And one of the elders turns to him, and and in verse 5 he says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, I don't want to go into the vision. I only want to go into that one description. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Anyone who has studied Old Testament prophecy would know that this is referring to the Messiah. And as we in Christianity would say, in Adventism would say, this is, this is Jesus Christ. The root of David. That is the identity of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And I'm going to read verse 8, the focus text for this morning. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore. Oh, sorry, that was verse, verse 6. I'm going to be in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. Why on earth would both Jesus and Satan be described as a lion in Scripture? Why would you give the exact same description that you would give to the Savior of all of mankind, to God, to the agent in creation, to the man that would save all of us of our sins, why would you attribute that same description of a lion to Satan? Simply put, 
this is why. What Satan offers, what Satan tries to do is dress himself up as someone that you want to follow. What Satan offers is a counterfeit to the real thing. And his whole goal, the whole aim is that when you look at Satan and you look at Jesus, you can't tell the difference. You don't know. See, Satan can disguise himself as an angel. Satan can appear to you as the most tempting thing in the world. And you would think that as you follow him, you're following the right path. There are two lions in Scripture. Jesus says to trust in himself for salvation. Satan says that you can save yourself. A counterfeit of salvation. Jesus says to rely on him for wisdom. Yet Satan says you're smart enough to deal with it on your own. A counterfeit of wisdom. Jesus says that all have fallen short of the glory of God and need a savior. Satan says, well, you haven't murdered anyone. You're a good person. A counterfeit of goodness, a counterfeit of righteousness. Satan will always cheat you of the real thing, which is why he warns, be sober-minded and be watchful. And he continues in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resisting the devil isn't easy. See, in their wisdom, Israel thought that their Savior, the Messiah, would come and free them from Rome and establish Israel as the earthly kingdom. This is what they expected. And they were so caught up in what they believed was the right interpretation of these prophecies that they missed the real Savior when he came. They were deceived even though they had the best intentions. This is the thing about deception. Those who are deceived and wrong will often believe 100% that they are doing the right thing and that they are correct. They will believe they are following the lion of the tribe of Judah while they are following the wrong one. They will believe that they are acting in love just as Jesus commanded us to. And when we look at it, we may be convinced that what they're doing is love. The thing about deception is you don't know that you've been deceived. I have, growing up, I've had some real issues with the Adventist study of the end times. And it's not because of the doctrines themselves. It's not because of the, the conclusions that we've come to themselves. It is because of the way that we talk about it. And one of my biggest fears as we talk about the end times, as we talk about the suffering, as we talk about these laws and things that are past and things that happen, 
is that we would be so caught up in our interpretation of how it happens that if we're wrong, we'll miss Jesus altogether. See, the way that I was always taught it growing up was that the sufferings and, and, and the things that would happen are very Amerocentric. In other words, you and I will be running towards the caves. But there are already people running. You and I will experience Sunday laws. Well, A, Sunday laws have been on the books for over 100 years, but on top of that, there are people in other countries who do not have the ability to worship, who do not have the option to worship, who do not have the option to be missionaries, who face jail time for it, who face death for it. And yet somehow we've come up with this idea that until it happens to you and me, it ain't happening yet. We've still got time. That is the deception I'm worried about. It is a deception that leaves us unable to sympathize, empathize, and pray for those who are already suffering. This is the danger of deception. So this is what I want to challenge you with today. Always be reanalyzing what you believe. Always be willing to go back into Scripture and put your knowledge to the test. We shouldn't just study something once or twice and believe that we are sufficient in our knowledge of it. We learn and we grow and we realize that we may have been wrong on some things. For example, the entire founding of the Adventist church started from a mistake. A man thought Jesus would come back on a specific day, and when he didn't, those that would later found the Adventist church went back into those prophecies, went back into the interpretations, and figured out what the correct one was. It was based on reanalyzing, relooking at our beliefs and always being willing to say, maybe I was wrong. This is the first and foremost part of Christianity, of Adventism, of any, any belief system within the Christian church, which is this. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He died and He rose again. That's first. That's the thing that if you get that wrong, nothing else is going to be right. I'm not saying that that's what you need to reanalyze. I'm saying Jesus first, doctrines second. The doctrines are what we must always be reanalyzing, and I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying let us not be so convinced that we're right, that we deceive ourselves. So at the end of this section of Scripture, Peter gives this call. Resist the devil, stand firm in your faith. And in verses 10 and 11, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
which lion will you follow?